Each year, the PubK Group convenes the top practitioners in government contracting to discuss the past year's most important and intriguing developments for federal contractors and their counsel. From January 9th to the 12th, our experts will engage in 12 in-depth discussions about contract requirements, litigation, legislation, and regulatory activity. For a preview of this year's event, join us now for this special edition of Bonafide Needs with our host, Arnold and Porter partner Mike McGill, and his guest, Pilera Mazza partner, Nicole Atala. In this episode, Mike and Nicole discuss plans for this year's panel on labor and employment issues. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. Happy to be here. So very excited to have Nicole. Nicole is the practice group chair for Polera Maza's Labor and Employment Group and co-chair of that firm's construction industry team. And Nicole has joined us today. We're previewing the Labor and Employment Panel for PubK's annual review. That panel is going to be held on Monday, January 9th from 3 o'clock to 4.50. And Nicole... Maybe before we talk a bit about the panel and developments in the labor and employment area this year, just to start with an overview of your practice. Sure. So um, as you mentioned, I am with the law firm Clara Mazza. We're a boutique government contracts firm, but I specialize in the area where labor and employment meets, you know, public contracting. Um, we can do all of the normal stuff you would expect a labor and employment attorney to do, right? We could do position statements, non-competes, all of that stuff. But the industry we really serve is the government contract industry. So anything related to a procurement and people and how it impacts your people, that's what I do. Excellent. Thanks, Nicole. And in terms of the panel on the 9th, maybe it would be helpful to introduce your other panelists, your other speakers, uh, and sure. and at least your current plans, and we're, we're a month or more out, but your current plans for, for what you'll cover. Absolutely. So we have a great group um, that's going to show up to share their expertise in this area. I think all of us um, practice in a similar area. We all have the things we like to talk about more than others, but Howard Wolfrada is with Abrahams Wolfrada, um, and I've known that firm, he and Dan, for a long, long time. And they are just excellent, an excellent wealth of knowledge in labor, particularly David Bacon, SBA, um, and how it interacts with state wage and hour law. Uh, Michael Schreier, I've known just about as long. Three of us all serve on the American Bar Association subcommittee on uh, employment, labor, and safety, and have rotated chairs for a long, long time. And Michael also, like me, uh, does a lot with David Bacon. We all know the SBA, we all know procurement, but he really specializes in construction and, um, you know, SBA, all the OFCCP, all, the, all of that kind of thing. But he has lots of fun pieces to talk about. He's, you know, just kind of a a wealth of information and he gets these quirky cases he loves to talk about. So I'm hoping we can share some of those with you. And then Trina Barlow is with Prowl and she comes to it from a different perspective. Years ago, I worked with Trina on a 
a non-compete case involving two of our clients, a pleasure to work with, and I think brings a little bit of a different perspective to the panel. So it would be nice to to get her insight. I don't think she was on the panel last year, so it'll be nice to to have another um, another lady to talk with uh, outside of all these guys on the panel. <laughs> and so the task that that for the four of you have taken on, it seems a bit of a daunting one, which is you've got an hour and 50 minutes or so to cover all of the stuff that has come out in the labor and employment area affecting government contractors over the past year. And so how, how are you thinking about how you'll break that up, how, how you'll kind of talk through those issues and summarize them for the audience? You're right. It is a is it a very large task um, because, you know, I think for a lot of government contractors, labor and employment is still the thing that uh, distracts you from the thing you really want to be doing, which is getting more work, right? I mean, that's always the challenge with a labor and employment attorney. <laughs> like you, you're built with people, you have to focus on it, but it feels like a distraction. So our intent when we're planning this panel is always to try to figure out the things that really are going to impact government contractors? What do they really need to be thinking about, planning for, and implementing? And, and for some folks, it's going to be, uh, what do I need to get caught up on? Because it's been a little bit of a crazy year. Um, some of the stuff, we're going to say, don't worry about that too much, right? Um, and it's going to be a quick conversation. For example, last year, we focused a lot on the vaccine mandate. We had a significant section focused on that. And we're in a very different place now than we were a year ago with respect to the mandate. Um, a lot's happened, but the takeaway is going to be pretty short there. So I expect us to shift focus a little bit towards the funding that's coming down the pike and prevailing wage with Davis Bacon. What's happening on the labor front? Front, um, For example, the Biden administration is really focused on independent contractors changing those rules. What's happening with minimum wage? Um, and there's a lot going on at the OFCCP this year. Uh, a lot of contractors have had to deal with, you know, adapt to, and it's a little bit scary. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about you know, what that, what you should have done this year if you haven't already, how to get caught up, um, and focus on those, really those action items. What do you really need to be doing this year? And what should you just let your, your lawyers and um, consultants uh, handle? And you can get their blogs and just like, read the tidbits and don't have to worry too much about them yet. And we're going to try to distinguish between those two buckets of things. Great. And then in terms of the the developments at OFCCP and, and everything that they've been up to, that office has been up to, uh, I, I just think of you know, the directive on advancing pay equity. They have the portal as well. Um, in addition to obviously enforcement trends, Maybe give um, we give the audience a bit of a taste on what you end up covering in that area. Yeah, so I, I think you previewed it well, Mike. The biggest, I think, one of the biggest adjustments that contractors have focused on this year was the portal. What was happening with the portal? Why do we have to upload our AAPs into the? You know, you know, what are they going to do with that information once they get it? Um, and how is it going to impact enforcement? And I think what we've seen out of Director Yang is that they're really focused and shifting towards data crunching, right? So I think we're going to see 
at least I have seen in investigations this year, that it's a lot of data gathering. And then I think what's going to be interesting next year is to figure out what they do with that data, right? So what we want to let contractors know is what they should already be doing to prepare for that, like how that's going to change the CSAL listing, how that's going to change how OOTCC conducts investigations, what they're going to do with information once they get it. And with respect to pay equity, I think that's really changing how they approach investigations, right? So there have there's been some, some question as to whether OFCCP had the authority to ask or to tell contractors to do some of the things it told them to do. And right. so I think we're going, we're going to talk a little bit about, okay, whether or not OFCCP has the authority to tell you to do X, Y, and Z and to, you know, to do a certain type of analysis, what should you be prepared for if they do come knocking? Right. Those are sometimes two different questions. How do you want to approach it? What do you do when they come back? So that's kind of, I think, the way we'll approach that. Great. And then, and I'm glad you mentioned the vaccine mandate because, of course, as you said, that was every, everybody was focused on, all the contracting community was so focused on that a year ago uh, or, you know, 14 months ago. And, And things have certainly changed. But we are still in a pandemic, and so I imagine you'll touch a bit on the sick leave rules and sort of the trends that you're seeing in terms of complying with the sick leave rules as the as contractors have tried, gotten more employees back into the workplace. Absolutely, and I think that touches on um, on. One component of federal procurement that I think if you are in the C-suite or HR, you never you never miss, which is in addition to these executive orders, you have all of these states that are taking action on sick leave, um, meal and rest breaks, things that states used to kind of stay out of because the federal government was more aggressive than a lot of states. And now those tables have kind of turned. We see a lot of states taking action. Um, and that that fits right into how does that work with these executive orders like sick leave? What do I do with that? Um, one of the questions I get probably every week is, but Nicole, I don't really have to worry about that because all of my people work on a federal enclave, which is a totally loaded question, right? Like what mm-hmm. is a federal enclave? And it works in some contexts. It doesn't work as well in the labor and employment context um, most often. So the question we get often in sick leave now is not whether it applies. You know, years past, it was like, does it apply to my contract yet? I'm waiting. Now, most contracts have the sick leave executive order in them. Sometimes we see some procurement defects. You know, they leave it out, should have been in. We need to fix it. But for the most part, it should be in there. Contractors are still struggling with like, okay, what does that mean as far as what I pay people? How do I really apply it? And the how do I apply it question goes hand in hand with being a multi-jurisdictional employer, state law. And those are the more complicated questions um, that I know all of us are are helping clients work through these days. And that's that's interesting. Maybe that's a segue because where we are in the life cycle of sick leave, the, the rules and compliance you could distinguish that from where we are with respect to the new 
minimum wage requirements and with respect to the new non-displacement requirements or proposed requirements. And right. I assume you'll end up covering those in, in, in some detail, those proposals um, that out of the administration in some detail during the panel. Absolutely. Minimum wage is my favorite. I have a blog <laughs> written on it right now. It's so confusing the way that I understand the way that why the FAR Council did what they did, but they essentially attached the same FAR number, but they have two different names. Uh, but if you read the executive order, they still have to be incorporated and modified into your contract this year. So you, we have a lot of questions right now coming up. Well, what applies? Do I use the old minimum wage or the new minimum wage? The idea was that by the end of this year, we wouldn't have an old minimum wage and a new minimum wage. But contracting officers are confused because the FAR number is the same, and which calls into question price adjustment. So it's to me is like, you know, it's a it's what I call a lawyer's dream and a client's nightmare, right? It's it's like it's really fun for me because I like these puzzles. That's why I do what I do. It is not fun for our clients who are trying to figure out what do I pay people and how do I get my price adjustment. And so we're gonna we're gonna work through that. I think we'll spend a few minutes on that. So Michael Schreier covered non-displacement last year. He did a great job explaining what we could expect and how it was different from the old non-displacement rule. We'll likely cover that at a high level again, maybe in a little bit shorter um, because we have so much to cover. I don't expect us to spend as long with it. The, the news out of the Department of Labor on it, just to kind of give people a sneak preview, um, is that they were supposed to have it done this fall. We expected by, I think, the summer in July to have final rules. That was their, their timeline. They are far behind. And my last word for out of uh, wage and hour was that it would be February when we could expect the final rules. Obviously, that's not set in stone, but that's kind of a uh, word on the street as far as when we can expect those final rules. But there are some significant differences between the old non-displacement um, application and, and the new rules. And we expect those to be significant and highly influenced by labor. Thanks, Nicole. And another one of the major proposals out of the administration this year was the revamping of the Davis-Bacon Act implementing rules. Uh, will you guys plan to cover that this year? Yeah, I expect us to haggle a little bit over who gets to cover those because we're all really interested in what's going to happen. It also, <laughs> right. as you, <laughs> as you know, it also dovetails with uh, a lot of transportation money out there, right? A lot sure. of construction mm -hmm. money out on the street. So as contractors are trying to, you know, compete for those funds and those projects, um, you know, there's going to be significant changes in how they it will see the timing on this, right? If they manage to get us final rules and implement these things before these projects really, um, really start gaining momentum. But it's going to be a really interesting time as contractors try to deal with some of these changes. And the changes are somewhat fundamental. Um, you know, some of the changes that were requested really put the onus back on contractors and take away some of the responsibility from the Department of Labor. And those are kind of scary, scary adjustments and changes because it makes it less of a creature of contract. We're always telling our clients, well, Davis-Bacon and SBA, they're creatures of contract, but it's really trying to move some of this responsibility 
back over to the contractor, which increases the potential for liability, which is which is a little bit scary. So we'll see kind of how that plays out this year. Do you have a sense, Nicole? Um, it, you, you mentioned you did have a sense on timing in terms of next steps on non-displacement. Do you have a sense um, on potential next steps on the Davis-Bacon rulemaking? I think we're quite a ways out, honestly. Yeah. I don't. I couldn't get a sense from them on what they expect, but it's such a big lift um, with a lot of folks invested and a lot of commentary that I think they'll push to get it out sometime this this year <laughs> optimistically because um, they don't want to go into the next year but it's taking so long to get rules I, I I'd hesitate to say we'll have anything before summer and, and your your point about time being of the essence with that rulemaking is a good one because of the infrastructure bill and, and all of the funding the, the wave of funding and then projects that are likely to be Davis-Bacon Act or, or related act covered. Um, so we'll certainly be following that. We'll look forward to your coverage of that during the panel. And, and another, another rulemaking uh, that, that wasn't government-wide or executive branch-wide, but certainly got a lot of attention from the contractor community this year was U.S. Department of Agriculture's uh, proposed blacklisting, as it's called, in the contractor community rule. Um, will you guys touch on that at all and maybe where you think that may or may not be leading in terms of the administration's plans in that regard? Absolutely. Um, so this is, I would expect Michael to want to take this one. He's, you know, in, in our committee activities, he is always keeping up on the USDA rule and what it might mean. Uh, more broadly. So the way this kind of, we think, you know, we're kind of guessing to some degree, but the way we really think this, that this really came about was, if you remember the history, uh, the, the blacklisting rule as an executive order, some version of it came out of the Clinton administration, came back during the Obama administration, and then um, was kind of sideline what Congress thought was more permanently through the Congressional Review Act. They tried to sideline that executive uh, executive order so that it could not come back as easily under the Biden administration. There's an there's a process um, where where they can kind of do that. It has to be significantly different to revive it. And so we really felt when the USDA came out with its own rule saying, look, if you have some of these labor violations, we're not going to let you do work with us. That this was really a test to see if agencies themselves could implement their own versions without challenge. And it doesn't seem like it has really gone anywhere since it was issued. Uh, the agency really hasn't done anything with it as far as we can tell yet, but it's really interesting. It's still there. It's not like anyone has has revoked that, you know, moving forward in that vein. Um, but, you know, if we could see anything at any time. So I would expect us to cover it in the context of this is still on the minds of the administration somewhere, right? And how do we kind of move around and navigate in the executive branch kind of efforts by Congress to any executive power, which is what you have seen 
you, you've seen a lot of executive power challenged over the last two years. Like what are, and that, you know, that would apply to both parties. Right. Um, and right. so I think everyone is really interested in, you know, we really saw this push towards Congress is stuck. So the executive is going to do all of this fun stuff. And now we're seeing challenges to how far can the executive really go? And I put this in the vein of a test case. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be, it'll be very interesting to follow. And, also look forward to to the coverage of that issue on the panel. Um, sounds like Michael will focus on it. And then Nicole, I apologize for jumping around, but there's so many issues this year, so many developments. Another one that got a lot of attention was the Freedom of Information Act request for contractors EEO one reports. <laughs> will the panel touch on that and where things stand? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure we will cover it. Um, you know. I'm sure most of us on the on the panel were knee deep in FOIA objections for a while. And the interesting part, not surprisingly, it's been a disaster since the objections went in. And uh, I've got a lot of emails last week from clients that said, didn't, we, did, we submitted them, right? And the agency had sent them emails that, and said, we didn't get anything from you. And so... Look, it's and then there, you know, there's some movement in courts on on the challenge and things like that. So I am sure we will cover it. Um, I will be interested to see if any of that moves before the panel in January. But not surprisingly, the agency has had some challenges dealing with the process, and um, I expect there to be some action in courts on this as well. And one of the things. That, that makes this area so interesting, right, is that it's changing all the time, that there are developments on a rolling basis. But that also, I imagine, makes it really difficult for your panel because you may get something that drops the first week of the new year and people are going to tune in and be like, OK, this panel is going to be covering this, right? right. Our joke um, among those of us that get together on a regular basis to talk about these things uh, is that you schedule meetings with each other so that you get updates and things move. Because it always seems like whenever we're doing a webinar or a panel or we're meeting as a committee, the day before we, we meet or the morning of, things start dropping. So we, we're very good at rolling with the punches. And uh, if something drops, January 5th, I'm sure we'll figure out a way to talk about it or modify quickly. <laughs> We're very accustomed to it. <laughs> and so we've covered, Nicole, thanks so much. We've covered so many areas. Um, we've covered all of the, the, the developments of the last year that hit my, or most of them, at least to hit my radar screen. Um, but I'm wondering, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that's worth mentioning in terms of a preview of the substance that the panel will be covering. Is there anything else in, in other areas, whether it be human trafficking or executive compensation or non-solicit agreements, uh, uh, reduction in forces, and anything else that you think is worth mentioning that you'll you think you'll end up spending some time on? I think um, what I what I would like to see the panel do this year, and I think we'll touch on a little bit, is don't forget to go back to the basics. Like sometimes we spend all of this time trying to figure out like what's new, what's coming. And I am seeing more and more, you know, just I missed general, I missed the general rules. 
Like I didn't understand what I was supposed to be doing. I didn't understand the Department of Labor had the authority or the contracting officer had the authority to do that, right? And that is where I'm seeing, we're seeing agencies be more aggressive in investigating without the Department of Labor, more confusion by contracting officers on how all of this stuff applies, right? So you, you as contractors or contractors in general have all this stuff you have to keep up on. It's really hard. It's really hard for contracting officers too, right? They make mistakes all the time. And so we're trying to figure out how to work better with the contracting community to make sure that the, the contract provisions and the stuff that needs to be in there is right so that the contractors can do their job right. Um, and we've seen much more active enforcement by the Department of Labor with investigators that are less experienced, right? So we're all kind of experiencing those, uh, those workforce trends of early exits, people leaving the workforce, new people coming in. And I think it's worth a note on the biggest places you're going to get in trouble in the next year is if you are investigated and making sure that you have trained your teams and done what you need to do to make sure you can stay out of trouble. Um, so it's not exactly a new development, but it's my soapbox every time I do one of these is like, don't forget, train your team. You might know it. Your team might not know it. Um, and it can save you a lot of money and a lot of time. That's very helpful, Nicole. And, and I think that at least to speak for myself, that is a value add for the panel is not not just to focus on because we there are issues that hit our radars, right? That the practitioners in this area, we know that there is a new executive order on non-displacement. It's not so, so new anymore, but we also know that there's an overhaul of the Davis-Bacon rules. But it's helpful to know from you and from this panel what you're seeing in terms of enforcement, because a point that you made is an important one, which is is you've got to track all the incremental changes and you have to understand when they hit you, they hit your contracts and you've got to comply with them, but you can't lose track of the pre-existing requirements and how new requirements fit in with the pre-existing requirements. So the point being, this will certainly look to the panel, the audience will look to the panel for guidance on what you're seeing in terms of enforcement trends with respect to pre-existing requirements like the Service Contract Act, which generally hasn't changed in some time, but certainly we've seen changes in the way that's enforced and where uh, the, the department is focused. Yeah, and this lack of updates, right? So your point about the Service Contract Act is a good one. It hasn't changed that much since, you know, 85, I think, was one of the <laughs> last major updates. Think about how the working world has changed since 85. Think about how the working world has changed since 2000, 2020, right? The, the changes in workforce patterns, where work is done, that has significantly impacted the application of the FCA. What do we do about folks? Do we now, we now need 50 or 60 wage determinations because we have employees working remotely in 50 or 60 locations? Um, the types of work that are being done. You, you know, you're seeing many, many more mapping issues under the SCA. So I think the world, the, the statute itself might not have changed. The regulations might not have changed, but the way that those investigations are applied to the current world that we live in has significantly changed in the last year, year or two. That, that's a great point. And we're seeing the department 
right, they are addressing some of those changes as they take on new rulemakings or new policies, because we see in non-displacement, for example, there is a treatment, there's additional focus on remote workers. But like you said, for these pre-existing regimes that haven't changed at all or haven't changed so significantly because they don't get removed when every administration changes. And so reintroduced and then they have to be revisited, but they've been in place. But you still have to think about the way some of these changes in employment practices affect compliance and then enforcement. Absolutely. Spot on. It's what I think one of the biggest challenges for businesses generally and and the con- the government contract and federal procurement community because there's just you got all the stuff that commercial businesses have to worry about and the federal acquisition regulation or you know you name it you've got the agency regulations that layer on top of the FAR and the DFARs and there's just a lot out there and the practical application of that and practical impact is is huge and, and, and we'll look forward to the panel pulling that all together for us. Uh, Nicole, I want to thank you again. This, this has been great. It's a great preview of the panel. Again, for the audience, it's Monday, January 9th from 3 o'clock to 4.50. You, you can register for that panel and the other panels on the PubK website. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then also... Do, do tune in at three o'clock on the ninth, but also there will be a chance if for some reason you have a conflict or you missed that, this panel and the other panels, uh, the plan is that PubK will make those available. Um, what, once they're, they're ready, those videos will be posted to the website and made available as well. And so, Nicole, thank you so much. Hopefully you'll be willing to come back and, and chat with us um, on developments in the future. Absolutely, anytime. Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright Arnold and Porter, providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors, and the PubK Group, publisher of daily news and insights for government contractors and their counsel. This podcast is produced by Mike McGill and Bill Olfer.